0: Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR Publications. You can learn more on our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. This episode provides audio abstracts of papers published in the April 2023 issue of SIR's Journal of Vascular and Interventional Radiology. You can find the full papers on JVIR.org. My name is Daniel Kim.
1: Hello, my name is Ramel Noche and I'm a third-year medical student at Frank H. Netter, MD, School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. I will be reading the abstract titled, Predicting the Safety and Effectiveness of Inferior Vena Cava Filters, Outcomes at 12 Months by Johnson and colleagues. Purpose. To determine the safety and effectiveness of Vena Cava Filters, or VCFs. Materials and Methods. A total of 1,429 participants consented to enroll in this prospective non-randomized study at 54 sites in the United States between October 10, 2015 and March 31, 2019. They were evaluated at baseline and at 3, 6, 12, 18, and 24 months following VCF implantation. Participants whose VCFs were removed were followed for one month after retrieval. Follow-up was performed at 3, 12, and 24 months. Predetermined composite primary safety and effectiveness endpoints were assessed. Results. VCFs were implanted in 1,421 patients. Of these, 71.7% of patients had current deep vein thrombosis and or pulmonary embolism. Anticoagulation therapy was contraindicated Or had failed in 81.6% of patients. 8.9% of VCFs were prophylactic. Mean and median follow up for the entire population was 243.5 plus or minus 243.3 days and 138 days, respectively. Mean and median follow up for those whose VCFs were not removed was 332.6 plus or minus 290 days and 235 days, respectively. VCFs were removed from 44.5% of patients at a mean of 101.5 plus or minus 72.2 days and median 86.3 days following implantation. The primary safety endpoint and primary effectiveness endpoint were both achieved. Procedural adverse events were uncommon and usually minor, but one patient died during attempted VCF removal. Excluding strut perforation greater than 5 millimeters, VCF-related adverse events were rare, occurring in 0.5% of patients. Post-filter venous thromboembolic events, none of which were fatal, occurred in 6.5% of patients, including deep venous thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and/or cable thrombotic occlusions. Post-filter venous thromboembolic events, none of which were fatal, occurred in 6.5% of patients, including deep venous thrombosis, pulmonary embolism and or caval thrombotic occlusions. No pulmonary embolism occurred in patients following prophylactic placement. Conclusions, implantation of VCFs in patients with venous thromboembolism was associated with few adverse events and with a low incidence of clinically significant pulmonary embolism.
2: Hello, my name is Sydney Levy and I am a third year medical student at the University of Florida College of Medicine. I will be reading the abstract titled lateral subdermic venous plexus insufficiency the association of varicose veins with restless legs syndrome and nocturnal leg cramps by pine and colleagues purpose to determine whether nocturnal symptoms of restless leg syndrome or rls and muscle cramps in the legs are associated specifically with lateral subdermic venous plexus or lsvp insufficiency and whether treatment can provide symptomatic relief. Materials and methods. A retrospective cross-sectional observational study of 506 patients at a single site analyzed whether RLS or nighttime leg cramping symptoms were associated with venous reflux in the LSVP using comprehensive venous ultrasound. The treatment outcomes of ultrasound-guided foam sclerotherapy or USGFS, were followed up for one year. Results. Of 209 patients who reported restless leg symptoms, 179, or 85%, demonstrated an abnormal LSVP. A total of 214 patients reported nighttime muscle cramping, of whom 197, or 92%, demonstrated an abnormal LSVP. Among 124 patients presenting with both the symptoms, 113 demonstrated an abnormal LSVP. Conversely, of 83 patients who presented with neither RLS nor nocturnal cramping, two had an abnormal LSVP. Among 242 symptomatic patients with an abnormal LSVP who underwent treatment, the technical success rate was 100%. At 90-day follow-up, 224 patients, or 93%, reported continued relief, which was maintained at 93% at follow-up at one year. When substratified, 90 patients presented primarily with RLS or cramping and showed only LSVP reflux, and when treated, all 90 had significant or complete relief of the symptoms. Conclusions LSVP insufficiency demonstrates an association with symptoms of RLS and nocturnal leg cramps. LSVP treatment using USGFS demonstrated high technical and clinical success rates with symptomatic relief up to one year, most pronounced when the LSVP was the only treated vein.
0: Hello, my name is Shalom Ammon and I am a first-year medical student at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University. I'll be reading the abstract titled Adverse Events Associated with Intraarterial Administration of Gadolinium-Based Contrast Agents, a systematic review and meta-analysis by McCloyd and colleagues. Purpose, to determine the risk of immediate hypersensitivity reactions, or HRs, contrast associated acute kidney injury, or CAAKI, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, or NSF, and gadolinium retention associated with use of intraarterial gadolinium-based contrast agents, or GBCAs. Materials and methods. MEDLINE, MBASE, and Cochrane Central Register of Controlled Trials were searched from 1988 to March 2021 for studies reporting adverse events associated with intra administration of GBCAs. The number of adverse events in GBCA administrations were used to calculate incidents in individual studies, and results across studies were pooled using random effects of meta-analysis. Results. There were 72 studies that reported on HR, 59 studies that reported on CAAKI, in six studies that reported on NSF. No studies reported gadolinium retention as an outcome. Based on five events and 1,451 GBCA administrations, the incidence of HR per 100 administrations was 0.95. Based on 90 events and 1,318 GBCA administrations, the incidence of CAAKI per 100 administrations was 5.94. Based on seven events and 361 GBCA administrations, the incidence of NSF per 100 Group 1 GBCA administrations was 4.72. There were no unconfounded NSF events after Group 2 GBCA administration. Conclusions HRs to intraarterial administration of GBCAs are rare, with no serious reactions. Limited data demonstrate a higher than expected rate of CAAKI. However, multiple confounding factors were noted. Thus any causative link of CAAKI to GBCA remains controversial. Also, severe physiologic reactions including life-threatening arrhythmias during coronary angiography have been reported.
3: Hello, my name is Priya Gupta and I'm a fourth-year medical student at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. I will be reading the abstract titled Preoperative Arterial Embolization for Heterotopic Ossification of the Hip by Papalexis and colleagues. Purpose To investigate the efficacy and safety of preoperative arterial embolization for neurogenic heterotopic ossification, or NHO, of the hip. Materials and methods. The single center retrospective study reviewed outcomes in 16 consecutive patients who had surgical resection of NHO of the hip, eight of whom underwent preoperative arterial embolization and eight of whom did not. Both patient cohorts had similar baseline characteristics. A mean of 2.62 plus or minus 1.9 arteries per patient, including the gluteal, lateral circumflex femoral, and deep circumflex iliac branches were embolized using an N-butyl cyanoacrylate, or NBCA, ethiodized oil mixture. Data from both cohorts regarding intraoperative blood loss, volume of blood transfused, complications, and duration of hospitalization were compared. Results. A mean of 2.6 plus or minus 1.9 arteries were embolized with NBCA ethiodized oil, mainly the gluteal arteries, lateral circumflex femoral artery, and deep circumflex iliac artery. In the embolization group, mean intraoperative blood loss was 875 milliliters plus or minus 320. Mean number of units of blood used was 0.5 plus or minus 0.7 and mean number of days of hospitalization was 6.4 days plus or minus 1.6. In the control group, mean intraoperative blood loss was 1,350 milliliters plus or minus 120. Mean number of units of blood used was 2 plus or minus 1.1. And average number of days of hospitalization was 11.5 days plus or minus 1.4 the embolization group had a mean reduction in blood loss of 40.7%, reduction in units of blood administered of 75%, and reduction in days of hospitalization of 44.7%. No procedural complications were recorded. Conclusions, preoperative arterial embolization is effective and safe in reducing intraoperative blood loss, number of hospitalization days, and need for blood transfusions in surgical resection of NHO of the hip.
4: Hello, my name is Anna Hu, and I am a third-year medical student at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I will be reading the abstract titled, Multi-Institutional Retrospective Study of Percutaneous Cholangioscopy-Assisted Lithotripsy for Inoperable Calculus Cholecystitis by Spiriniotopulus and colleagues. Purpose this study aimed to assess the safety and efficacy of percutaneous lithotripsy for gallstone eradication in patients with calculus cholecystitis with stones greater than 1 centimeter. Materials and methods. Multi-institutional institutional review board approved retrospective review of patients who presented with calculus cholecystitis were not determined to be surgical candidates. All patients underwent percutaneous cholecystostomy tube placement for acute infection which was later exchanged for a large sheath for shock pulse lithotripsy and stone destruction. Review parameters included procedural technical and clinical data, including clinical presentation, mean length of hospital stay, and post-intervention symptom reduction. Results. 12 patients underwent large-bore sheath cholangioscopy-assisted gallstone destruction via rigid lithotripsy. The size of the gallstones ranged from 1.2 to 4 centimeters. All patients had prior cholecystostomy access for a mean of 25 weeks before gallstone extraction to ensure tract maturation via transhepatic or transperitoneal access. The technical success rate in single-session stone removal was 100%, with no major procedure-related adverse events. All patients were symptom and pain-free after the procedure. The mean procedure time was 111.5 minutes, and the mean fluoroscopy time was 19.2 minutes. The median length of hospital stay was one day after the procedure. The mean time for percutaneous lithotripsy to biliary tube removal was 35 days. Conclusions Fluoroscopy guided percutaneous rigid lithotripsy is a safe and effective procedure for gallstone destruction and extraction in patients who are poor surgical candidates with large lumen-occupying cholelithiasis.
5: Hello, my name is Khalil Qasim, and I am a third-year medical student at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. I will be reading the abstract titled, Percutaneous Cystic Duct Interventions in Drain Internalization for Calculus Cholecystitis in Patients Ineligible for Surgery by Sperry and Colleagues. Purpose to evaluate the feasibility, effectiveness, and outcomes of percutaneous cholecystostomy drain internalization in patients with calculus cholecystitis who are not surgical candidates. Materials and methods. Percutaneous cystic duct interventions were attempted in 17 patients with the intent to place dual cholecystoduodenal stents who were deemed unfit for surgery and had previously undergone percutaneous cholecystostomies for acute calculus cholecystitis. Baseline demographics, technical success, time from percutaneous cholecystostomy to internalization of dual cholecystoduodenal stent placement, stent patency duration, and adverse event rates were evaluated. Results. 15 of 17 procedures to cross the cystic duct were technically successful. Of these 17 patients, 13 underwent successful placement of dual cholecystoduodenal stents. Two of these 13 patients who had successful dual cholecystoduodenal stent placement needed repeat percutaneous cholecystostomy drains. One patient had stent migration leading to recurrent cholecystitis, and the other had a perihepatic biloma. The one-year patency rate was 77%. Conclusions. Dual cholecystoduodenal stent placement in non-surgical patients is a technically feasible treatment option with the goal to remove percutaneous cholecystostomy drains.
0: We thank all the medical students who helped with this episode. My name is Daniel Kim, and I was your audio editor for this episode. The research from this episode appears in the April 2023 issue of JVIR, and you can visit jvir.org for the full papers, other audio content, and much more.